welcome to Nailing It Down, and this is our series on nations and nationalism. Um, we are beginning today discussing Imagine Communities, a um, 1983 book by Benedict Anderson. Um, just have it pop up in our face here. Um, which was released a couple different times. It was revised and released again in 1991 and revised and released again in 2006. The 2006 version is the version I have read. Um, it's part of a series of books that came out roughly in the late 70s, early 80s um, with Eric Gellner and uh, Hobsbawm, uh, that really set down and defined the historicist, yeah, Ernst Gerner, not Eric Gerner, uh, and Hobsbawm, Eric Hobsbawm, I completed their names, um, that really set down and set down the historicist school of um, looking at nationalism. Now, why are we starting here on our Nailing It Down project? Gene and I decided to start with the magic communities because it is the most referenced, cited, and read book on nationalism. Um, it's also the what we might call the standard socialist or Marxist view at this point. We could have started this series looking at the national question debates, going back to the original text, the debates between Rosa Luxemburg, uh, uh, Anton Panikuk, and... Um, Otto Bauer and Joseph Stalin, um, which is where this really originates in the socialist tradition. But most people, frankly, haven't read that. <laughs> so we're going to start at the place where most people have read. It's also important to note of the three book, uh, three scholars I mentioned, and the three books that they wrote on nationalism: Ernst Gellner's Nations and Nationalisms. Um, Eric Hobsbawm's Nations and Nationalism Since 1780 Program, Myth, and Reality. And I know it's totally confusing that these books almost have the same name. Um, that Imagine Communities is also the least hostile to the idea of nationalism. Um, not see nationalism as, as something that completely out of place in the globalized world um, although it would be interesting now to discuss this uh, a bit more in light of the things that have happened in the past, say, 10 years um, since since the EU crisis in 2011-2012. All right. Um, and I'm going to let Gene come in now. And we're I'm going to let him kind of set the stage for why this book is so important. Why is this the one? That most people start with and we'll go through the basic arguments and then discuss the limitations hey gene hey how you doing i'm doing Dad? well good 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 well yeah so you gave a pretty good uh, summation of nations and nationalism uh discussions in the early 80s and imagine communities place uh within that and yeah to reiterate your point is one of the reasons we wanted to start with this book which is kind of you know, if we look at the long history of nationalism studies and theoretical discussions of nationalism, this is kind of like 70% of the way through the discussion. Uh, but as you said, it's one of the most widely cited works 
partly because it's a very comprehensive look uh, at the rise of nationalism. It tries to be a very comprehensive look. Um, Benedict Anderson uh, is a historian of Asia, of Southeast Asia. So, you know, he's not coming into it purely from a Europeanist perspective. And he pr tries to provide a global and histor uh, historical discussion of the evolution uh, of nationalism, which, of course, has been criticized uh, on several fronts uh, before. Um, you know, it, it's been a, uh, you know, people have criticized uh, the depth of some of the uh, some of his takes on particular points in history, but you know, imagine communities is a catchy phrase. I don't believe Anderson actually came up with that phrase. I believe it originates in German, uh, and he brought that term to English. But it's a catchy phrase that people use in all sorts of contexts. So, where does Anderson fit within? The discussions of nationalism as you talked about just now one obviously there's a long tradition within the political left discussing the national question going back to marx and the second international and then of course uh you know it was a major issue uh, in the soviet union which actually went about building nations became an active nation builder and you know socialist movements in the process of decolonization became important nation builders as well. But of course, more generally, nationalism is an ideology, uh, to steal a turn of phrase, is the sort of ideology of rising capitalism. It's some uh, something that has come to exist in the last 200, 250 years. So it's something that has been theorized and discussed by all strands of modern political thought. That being said, the there have been long academic discussions which of course have parapolitical sometimes over political uh, meanings and connotations discussing uh, the rise of nationalism and we see Gail, uh, we see anderson within a tradition which in the academic field is known as modernism and this uh, this idea of modernism was a critique of the nationalists' own self-perception of what they were doing. So for many nationalists, the nation is a, a given. The term academics used is used to refer to this as primordialism, that one's national identity is primordial and innate to them. It's ineffable. It's linked to blood, culture, a lot of intangible uh, subjects and the historical narrative, of course, is one of continuity. Where you know nations, and I think it's uh, Galner who uses this analogy, are like sleeping beauties. They exist; they've always existed, but you know they have to be awakened. But that they exist priori is a given fact. And what modernists and Galner was one of the most forthright about this, and he linked the rise of nationalism to the rise of industrial civilization. What they did was reject this notion that nations were these eternal um, constructs that, you know, they may go through phases of dormancy, but, you know, at the end of the day, they're an ever-present uh, 
actor in the dance macabre of the historical process. And the modernists said, no, actually, this is nonsense. Uh, nations are constructed, invented, imagined, but they imagined in a specific historical era. And there were several different, let's say, versions of modernism coming to fruition, uh, particularly in the early 1980s, right? right. You have uh, Anderson writing, uh, Imagine Communities, but you have John Bruley, Nationalism and the State. You have Eric Hobsbawm, who you already uh, mentioned. Uh, and, and Eric Hobsbawm draws, draws a lot from Miroslav Hosh, who his work, I believe, was published in the mid-80s in English, although it was earlier in Czech, I believe, or Czech or German. Um, so you 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 have um, Eli Kadori, for example, who gives a kind of very liberal idealist story of nationalism as something that was invented in around 1800. But the common theme to all these modern writers is to provide a comprehensive or broad theorization of why nations were modern. This wasn't an entirely new idea, exactly, but it was one that really kind of got a radical edge in the 1980s with all this like flowering of work of which uh, Imagine Communities is perhaps the most famous of those works. Um, so, you know, that's the context in which Anderson is, is uh, writing. And this is coming at the end of a period in which, you know, very much in the post-Cold War era, there's been decolonization. Uh, there's been the proliferation of the nation state. You know, so remember, 1980, that's literally 40 years away from the whole world being ruled by empires, right? So mm. there's been this huge transformation. And Anderson is, in the beginning of his book, he's trying to understand, you know, the rise of nationalism, but also why did China and Vietnam go to war with each other? Because they're both communist countries. Why is Latin America divided into different uh, nation states, even though they share a common language? So he's trying to answer these with a comprehensive historical narrative, which is one of a number of narratives that have been uh, um, written at this time. And, you know, it's in dialogue with these people. For example, by using the term imagined communities, he's not exactly critiquing, but he's kind of shifting the emphasis from the work of Eric Hausborn who published a very well-known set of essays were called The Invention of Tradition, which has, you know, a number of different case studies written by a variety of different people from across the political spectrum. There's an interesting piece, for example, on the invention of Scottishness by Hugh Trevor Roper. But basically uh, showing how many of the so-called symbols of continuity with the nationalist past were either outright fabricated or a complete repurposing of an older tradition in an entirely novel and new concept to create a perception of uh, continuity with the past. So this is not... Uh, Anderson isn't rejecting the idea that nations are modern, but he's putting maybe we might say a more positive spin on it by moving away from this invention because in Hobsbawm's work it's very much nationalism is an ideology of the elite intrinsically linked to class and basically as a, uh, a counterpoint to class 
identity and to legitimizing state power. Anderson's providing a kind of still, I would say, out of a left-wing tradition, but a kind of a softer uh, view of nationalism. For example, he he doesn't see racism, for example, as being intrinsically linked to nationalism. He sees racism, for example, as being more a product of, for example, aristocratic styles of politics. Right. And he also disagrees with Gellner, um, who sees nationalism developing outside of Europe as a context purely of European uh, colonialization. Anderson kind of has a more complicated view of this as like. It's not. It is not just a con a consequence of European colonization. It is also a response to European colonization and a kind of using the master's methods against him. And you could definitely see, to me, what Anderson is is doing. I, I read in the debates. Um, are you familiar with uh, uh, the English language and the African writer by Chinua Achibe? No. Um, Okay, so that's a that's an inter-African debate about how nations and national language and colonial languages should be viewed. Mm -hmm. um, and and that's in the late 70s. And it also seems to me that, you know, Anderson is trying to bypass some of these critiques of nationalism from the from the decolonialists who just want to reject the idea entirely. And he's siding with people without citing them. But and maybe he didn't read them. Maybe this was just in the Zet guys at the time. But he's siding with people like Achibe who are saying, like, no, we have to use the nation state and unifying languages as part of our way to hold up a political community that's viable, as opposed to pre-European tribal communities or whatever, which which many in the, uh, you know, post-decolonial, post-colonial uh, thought spheres were really actually pushing in the 70s. And I think that's that's interesting to me i also you know i said that this has become the day the de facto marxist view um and i think that's true but it needs to be stated that anderson thought he was also critiquing the standard marxist view of of nationalism um yeah which i think he associated more with Hobbesbaum. yeah and i think you know the the i think when we actually go back to look at the sort of you know standard Marxist view, which really is, comes out of the Russian Revolution, comes out of uh, the writings of Stalin and Lenin specifically. Um, their view of nationalism is certainly what we might see as a variant of modernism, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but there is a kind of ambiguity uh, with the Marxist view as to the role of subjective and objective factors in defining the nation, the role of pre-existing pre-modern forms of community in share, uh, in forming the nation. And to sort of jump a little bit ahead, you have uh, a whole kind of school revived by another writer writing at this time, Anthony D. Smith, that develops this notion of ethno symbolism, which says, yes, nations and nationalism are modern, but they build on earlier political communities, these ethni, as he calls them. And really, you know, that's, I, I would say, uh, uh, Anthony Smith is, uh, was um, somehow kind of reinventing an old idea, which, you know, was quite common in the Marxist literature uh, in the lead up to the, 
Russian Revolution, that, you know, nations of modern nationalism is the ideology of uh, rising capitalism, but that there are these objective criteria of nations. So, you know, one way you can split the nationalism debate is obviously between the modernists and the primordialists, and then people who try to take a middle position, which I would say also includes Miroslav Horch, from whom Hobsbawm, who is definitely in the modernist camp, uh, draws on. Uh, and then you, another way you can split it is the debate over the whether nations can be objectively defined or subjectively defined as well. Whether there are whether it's a community of conscience and feeling and exists because people believe it, or whether you can identify certain objective criteria such as language, such as religion, such as a particular shared political destiny, whatever that means, uh, or some combination of those things. Uh, that provide an objective criteria for for the nation, and in right. that sort of discussion, I think definitely uh, uh, Anderson sort of he's a modernist, and he's also very much looking at the kind of subjective aspect of nationhood, not as some kind of uh, uh, um, objective phenomenon, but an actual political community. Yeah, I think that's these are important things to kind of to kind of parse out because you know when we talk about the standard Marxist view, which is a uh, Lenin Stalin, uh, the Lenin I like to call it the Lenin Stalin compromise because they actually didn't agree <laughs> exactly on uh, what a nation was and 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 who counts. Although Stalin probably. Uh, Stalin was the, the primary Bolshevik thinker on that before he was even the head of the Soviet Union, and that's something to always remember. Um, the, the, the debates that we'll come back to later, and I think, I think it's important that, that we go and talk about this in the, in the early 20th century, uh, really there were like four different positions that were common in Marxism before basically Lenin-Stalin won. And I would I would say Lenin and Stalin didn't even win when the Soviet Union is established. They really win after World War II. <laughs> like, like there's still plenty of schools of Marxists who favor, say, the Rosenwasch of our, our Anton Panert school. And Lenin um, splits the baby on that kind of like in State and Revolution. He actually calls he talks about how. Uh, Panacook and R Luxembourg are actually correct about the state against Kowski and Otto Bauer, but not about nations because they come from an unimportant nation like Poland. That's basically what he says. Um, and I, I find it interesting because you have this idea in Marx about historically important nations that come up over and over and over again. Uh, and if you're if you're looking to make Marx or Engels or are a lot of Marxists look bad, that's where you look because that's where the predictions tend to be the most off. Like for example, the Slobs are not a historical people, uh, according to, to I think it's Engels who says that. Um, yeah, so and, and, you know what, what I do mean. You do? There's this terminology historic and ahistoric uh, people. And this is a little bit of a sidetrack uh, from the, the matter at hand. But, you know, a lot of the terminology that we come up with relating to nationalism often has dodgy origins. Mm -hmm. So the historic and a, uh, unhistorical, a, uh, unhistoric nations, 
you know, that's really talking about state-bearing nations and non-state-bearing nations. Because, of Correct. course, during this time, um, you know, you have nationalism is still in the kind of constitutive uh, phase. And you have this conflict between the state nationalisms and the reactions to that nationalism. So you have the state-forming nationalism and the state-bearing nationalism. And then you have like the small people. And in Miroslav Hosh, he actually just uh, talks about great and small nations, which is not about size, but is about whether they have a strong tradition of statehood or they have some kind of intermediate position all the way down to very few institutions uh, at all. Uh, uh, so right. it's not an either all. The same is true with the discussion of ethnic and civic nations. You know, the term ethnic and civic nations, that was just a replacement for Eastern and Western nationalism because you had this concept of Western nationalism, which was good, liberal, and progressive, and Eastern nationalism, which was kind of the blood and iron uh, 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 nationalism. And as nationalism went westwards, it turned into this bad, uh, eastwards, it turned into this bad Eastern uh, nationalism. But in certain ways, Anderson's account is kind of at divergence to the general notion that, you know, you have the French Revolution, nationalism emanates from the French Revolution. Anderson, he does locate nationalism in the bourgeois revolutions of the 18th century, but it predates that. It's found in the Creole nationalisms in the Americas and then in Europe and then kind of uh, spreads around from there. So perhaps you might want to talk a little bit about uh, Anderson's uh, theories about why nationalism comes into being in the first place and what, in fact, a nation is. Because, yeah, you know, so, yeah. Anderson... I mean, he... Go ahead. Well, Anderson defines a nation as an imagined political community that is imagined as both inherently limited and sovereign. So it is a community that is bound by certain uh, areas. But, you know, what makes it interesting, it's it's imagined in the sense that not everyone in the nation is going to meet everybody else in the nation, but there is a supposed bond of community as right. opposed to earlier face-to-face -face communities where people actually know each other, right, or have close networks. The nation is... For most people, you're never going to know or meet anybody in that nation. So it's, so it's this notion that uh, of a limited and sovereign community, and a community that is, you know, part of a world that is divided into similar types of community. Yeah, I think you know, what, another thing. I think uh, that's that's interesting because we there's basically three things that that defines positively, and then three things that you kind of have to. Re nationalism has to reject for that definition to whole and anderson's basically whole book argues this but one nationalism is is recent and modern but has to appeal to most people as being old and timeless it just has to uh as a kind of organic whole to nationalism is universal in that most nationalists believe that everybody belongs to some kind of nation even if they don't live in the nation they should mm -hmm. um um but each nation is also completely distinct from another nation and nationalism is the idea so influential that people will die for nations yet at the same time 
almost no one can define it. He calls these like the three primary paradoxes, right, of nationalism. Um, but but they are all flow from that definition of a sovereign and limited people. Um, and then he also talks about, you know, three beliefs that has to be rejected. One of them, I think we can really kind of parse because I think his second assumption, uh, the second one is actually historically not as true as many people think. But uh, one, that certain languages such as Latin or Sanskrit are classical Chinese were superior because they gave access to universal truths. That idea has to be shuttered. Two, um, so there's no longer this imposition of like uh, communities where multiple, you don't have polyglot communities where education is only accessible through a secondary non-vulgar language. Um, two, the divine right of rule was granted to rulers of society, monarchs, and his national basis for organizing society has to be jettisoned with bourgeois revolutions. I, I find that one interesting because I actually don't think the divine right of rule is that common, <laughs> even in Europe. Um, and three, the origins of the of the world and of humankind uh, and of kinds were the same. Um, so that's that's an interesting one because. Um, that's one that 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 I also don't know is if is actually believed now. Um, so these are the those are the three beliefs that Anderson believes that nationalism rejects. So I'll just recap that again: that there are certain languages that are superior to all others. To that, uh, there's any divine or natural or natural right. I might say natural right to rule granted to specific groups because divine is a little bit more sketchy. And then three, that human, the origins of the world and the origins of humankind are the same. Um, and I would add to that, uh, this is an important point, but nations are also envisaged as being horizontal. That is, in most pre-modern societies, society, class is explicitly recognized, right? Right. It is a concrete phenomenon that you know is expressed in institutions, expressed in legal codes, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, I mean, down to what you can wear, what you can legally wear, like sumptuary laws and whatnot. Uh, a nation, nationalism, is whatever real class divisions and exploitation exist within the nation, the imagined community condenses that all down that's kind of ignored within the uh with within the discourse of the imagined community so the kaiser is not just the kaiser uh is is not somehow superior to all germans in the way he might have been envisaged in the 17th century but is the first of, amongst germans like the first citizens so even in these kind of conservative regimes the the, the role of the monarchy, for example, is reimagined uh, uh, in the uh, you know in the ideology uh, of the state. So you have this, and where you do have sumptuary laws, where you do have separate sets of le legal rights, they're not between classes, but are between people who are within the nation and people who are outside of that horizontally imagined community yeah so so 
a lot of Marxists make a, a big, uh, particularly now, I don't know why this framework has caught on particularly recently, that I'm talking about national classes, uh, class of production versus versus pre-modern class as caste. I find this distinction to be highly misleading um, because one, <laughs> um, the caste are, are set up in, in roles of production and about relations to production too. And two, um, it, um, it pretends that a lot of these legal categories were always clear in the way that we think of, you know, I guess with like, uh, the, the kind of myth of the modern Hindu state and Hindu caste or whatever is the model for that. But I do think it's important to realize that, that, one of the things about nationalism is that, and one of the Marxist ambiguities about it, um, is that nationalism is both horizontal and also definitionally class collaborative. So in so much that classes exist informally because of, of, of relations of production in, in nations, uh, it is seen as the national spirit or national function. They should all be, you know, they should all get along and that these distinctions are not distinctions, like you said, of value, but just distinctions of function. And that does actually cut against the Marxist framework of the world. Um, and I think that's been one of the, you know, w if you think about that and go back and look at what we were talking about, about these Marxist debates, why, why it was so debated is because class collaborationism is something that Marxism rejects, but they also historically thought that um, breaking up the multi-ethnic empires of the late, uh, of the early modern period was super important. So a kind of paradox emerges there about the Marxist relationship to nationalism. Now, Anderson isn't as concerned about that. I mean, he is trying to, write a new narrative that that is beyond the you know, traditional Marxist one. But it's interesting how, you know, so it's interesting how he sees, um, he talks about uh, nationalism as basically having some positive utopian elements because of its horizontalism and because of the fact that it really valorizes like um the idea of different of like differences being being important but not uh that you know if everyone has a nation then it's just a matter of every getting everyone into their right nation right like you should live where your people are now um, I do find it interesting, you know, that this is a dominant view now because it's very hard to square with, um, with, uh, with like what we might call settler nation nationalism, because those na nations are not nations, uh, that are completely unified by, by common culture or even, even necessarily language. Um, which is going to be something interesting. I think that's a, it, it is something that Anderson does try to deal with, but I think it, it's, it hurts his framework a little bit. Um, 
I think the other thing we have to talk about, he puts a whole lot of emphasis on uh, on the printing press. Oh, it's interesting that he specifically calls it um, print capitalism as a kind of like periodization of early capitalism, um, kind of predating industrial capitalism, but coming after, say, agrarian capitalism in England and France, right? Um, so he puts a whole lot of emphasis on this. And I think it's interesting because it is something that um, kind of ties a Marxist narrative of the development of of nationalism to a liberal narrative of the development of nationalism. So the liberal narrative is like nations come about as communities see themselves in print and there's this push for this. Um, by focusing on print capitalism, Anderson kind of has kind of slightly rejects both and appeases both simultaneously, both the liberal reading of the development of nations and the Marxist one. And I would also say people people focus on the print capitalism a lot. It's a catchy phrase again, and it's an interesting co concept. And specifically, uh, for those who aren't familiar, the notion of print capitalism is the idea that as the printing press proliferated in the uh, in Europe, uh, it became uh, profitable for printers to start printing in vernacular languages, which in, which helped in this process of standardization and the creation of a reading public who would have some kind of common, uh, uh, from which some kind of common identity would be built. Uh, this is only one plank of his theorization uh, regarding the rise of uh, nationalism. I would say, I think, mm -hmm. uh, I think, I think we often we often focus on the print capitalism, but not the other things, such as the decline of religious communities. In his view, the revolution in the way that people saw time, so the shift to 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 um, uh, you know, modern forms of uh, uh, conceiving of time uh, from from cyclical time to progressive time. You know, a variety of different uh, processes coming into being. For example, uh, with the rise of Creole nationalism in Latin America, where Spanish was spoken by all the political elites, the role of bureaucratic institutions and the way that administrative and trade routes helped shape the political horizons and imaginations of people during the early modern period. So Prince Capitalism is part of a broader argument explaining why nationalism emerges as this new kind of phenomenon. Yeah, I, I think it's over-focused on as, as an argument from the book because it's one of the things that actually is clearly related to capitalist development. So the Marxists like it, but it also is part of like most liberal historians accept that like nationalism begins with, with heavy use of vernacular language. And that comes out of the fracturing of the Catholic church and um, the invention of the printing press kind of simultaneously, right? Like those two things kind of happen and they're, they're in a feedback loop with each other. The Catholic Church is fracturing. The printing press happens. The fracturing continues more because you have these reformers printing all these pamphlets. This eventually leads to a schism, etc. Um, uh, 
I think I think the focus on Creole nationalisms is actually is actually interesting because that is where Anderson is markedly different from almost everybody else writing at the time. Um, because, you know, we talked about Gellner earlier on, who I guess we're going to have to go into a deeper dive in later, but Gellner sees this as mostly a European phenomenon and he, Gellner does more or less limit it to beginning in England and France um, and the, you know, the English Civil War and then the French Revolution, um, which is more in line with like classical Marxist thought, for example, whereas the Creole nationalisms um, are not really in in the picture. I mean, one of the things that I think is a legitimate criticism of Marxism uh, for being Eurocentric is not that Marx only thought Europe was important. That actually isn't true at all. It's just what he knew about Um you know, um, Marx actually talks a great deal about how, like, the Civil Wars was uh, more important than people thought it was the U.S. Civil War, for example. But um, I find I find that's probably why they focus on that. The Creole nationalism stuff is is actually more interesting. Would you like to go into like how did Creole nationalism lead to these bureaucratic apparatuses in Latin America? Um, I know quite a bit about this from from a non-national point of view. I know a lot about it from studying uh, the you know how how Mexico was formed. but um, I I find this part of of Benedict Anderson's book to be a part like I wanted a whole another book just about this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so as you pointed out, uh, when people studied nationalism, uh, many of the modernists are tracing it back to Europe and specifically to the linguistic nationalism uh, that took hold in Europe in the you know, in the nineteenth um, century. But Anderson obviously can't. Uh, uh, Anderson kind of. For, for for someone who's so associated with the rise of vernacular languages and the rise of nationalism, it's very interesting that Creole nationalism uh, was his focus. And the reason he talks about Creole nationalism is because he's trying to explain wait, what uh, it can't just be about. It can't just be about um, uh, uh, language. There has to be other factors. And so it, he talks about, you know, obviously the impact of liberalism, the impact of these revolutionary ideas, but what was defining the way that people saw themselves in a decolonizing Latin America was very much based on the pre-existing institutional and economic setup of that region. Uh, Anthony Giddens talks about nations as power containers. And in that sense, the colonial apparatus that existed uh, acted as a kind of shell within which these ident specific identities could uh, develop in their own way. So while simultaneously rejecting Spanish colonial rule, 
these Creole nationalisms were also in a very fundamental way shaped by the administrative and economic patterns created by Spanish colonial rule. It's not an accident that the national borders that emerge emerge on the administrative lines of the Spanish empire and related right. to the, uh, you know, I don't know, I don't, I, I'm not so convinced about necessarily the, the, uh, the, the economic trade route point, but maybe that's true as well. I think, I think the, you know, but what it comes down to is people living within these administrative units were used to operating with a particular administrative capital. The elites in that area were used to dealing with the people and territory under that purview. And that helped forge a, a collective identity based on a territorial unit that had been uh, that had been imagined and uh, had been imagined based on those colonial boundaries right and those I, I, in, when the formation of mexico for example right i can point out the major regions of mexico and their cultural differences and you can also literally link them to like uh like which group of uh which order of the church was running this region and then how they compromised here in mexico city and it overlaps with with uh you know pre pre-hispanic um civilization to some degree but you can draw these borders pretty clearly and you get you like kind of three distinct national zones in say mexico all right now anderson is right about this i just happen to know this but it does overlap with anderson's argument interestingly and also this is part of anderson's argument that kind of presages the discussion of like settler colonial nationalisms later because while that idea was already around it was not it was not common even in 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 like marxist discourse at this time like in the late 80s um it's it's kind of being picked up a little bit in the like in um in say maoist circles uh in the in in the english and french world like right after this book is first published um so i i find that interesting um the the amount of things that that anderson is trying to kind of combine in this book does make it really powerful um well it's a very it provides a very comprehensive narrative right right it, 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 yeah I mean that is that is one people like comprehensive narratives, right? It helps them organize the uh, organize their thoughts, and you know, in a large part, Anderson's narrative is a, you know, when you read it, is a kind of persuasive one, right? Yeah, it it is persuasive at first, um, and it it gives. I think also it gives a lot of, uh, you know, I have a theory about this gene that, that you, you can, re, you can respond to, but it also means that like, say the left seems to like this book in particular, partly because the left, whether it's Marxist or Keynesian tends to be methodologically nationalist in the way it views how you organize, uh, you know, and, and argue for power. Um, 
internationals are very very rare and in so much that they exist they're pretty they they don't really have any effect on policy um it, you know after actually after the you know the common turn really um so you know um i think anderson's kind of ability to write a comprehensive narrative that also kind of says well you know nationalism's not all bad and it's okay if leftists use it um as opposed to gellner and hobsbawm who 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 i kind of like better honestly even though i think anderson's narrative about this is is more historically comprehensive and um and i think his argument about the creole nationalism is actually inspiring nationalism in europe is interesting like and and i think i i you know what anderson is doing in this book as i mentioned at the outset he was a specialist of asia so he's pulling together a lot of literature i forget the name of the person but you know he, he that argument about um creole nationalism i believe comes from um What's his name? Another another scholar. Let me see if I can find it. Yeah, Hughes Seddon Watson, mm -hmm. who, who who wrote a book in 1977 that talked that talked about this. So he's pulling together a lot of threads, a lot of different, you know, like a lot of different uh, research on the topic. But I think you know that's like I think his discussion on Creole nationalism is 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 an important one that you know. I would say is one of his more important contributions. Yeah, I, I, I think so too. And I think him, his ability to, to integrate that into the, the, like the Gellner Hosbaum narrative and really, um, and really come up with something that is, that is somewhat, I think pretty persuasive at first about, about these administrative bureaucracies emerging, then you have the emergence of uh, print capitalism. Uh, you get these ideas spreading back into Europe. They manifest in these bourgeois revolutions, but they have a relationship to the the kind of Creole nationalisms in in the Americas, and then they get transmitted to um, to Africa and Asia via colonialism. Uh, there is. I think there's there's some complications of that in Asia because you do have proto nationalisms in say Japan and Korea, for example. Well, not um, just that. I would I'll make a I'll make a, a an observation here. So, for example, the discussion of uh, print capitalism, vernacularization, uh, as being driving forces of nationalism. Certainly, that seems to be an important part of the story. You know, even with the Creole, Creole nationalisms, you know, their ability to imagine themselves as part of this broader system is, you know, based on the fact that you have this kind of growing reading public, et cetera, et cetera, right? Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, a lot of recent research has shown that in Asia, across Asia during the early modern period, not just in China and Japan, you have a big process of vernacularization of writing which takes place in places where the printing press doesn't really take off that that much. Mm -hmm. So, so you know, there, 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 there are... I mean, also, Asia had a prison pre printing presses for like five to six hundred years before this happened yeah. in Europe. So, <laughs> you know. Yeah, so, 
the, there are questions, I would say, questions. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I find that I find that interesting too because you do have to explain why vernacularization happens in in Asia when it does, but also why it isn't associated with the printing press at all. Like, for example, I mean, there's been a, a non-movable type printing press in Korea for print presses for a thousand years, you know, like easily a thousand years. Um, and then you have movable type in China, what was like two or 300 years before you have it in, in, in Europe? It's significantly for, and you don't have any of this um, uh, vernacularization. And the other thing you can say, for example, in China now, you could argue that there still has not been vernacularization. Um, because Mandarin, while it's kind of become a, a you know, a, 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 a spoken language that's default, it didn't start that way. Like, it was a specific court language that, while the writing system has existed for 3,000 years, it's only about 300 years old, I think. It's not very old. Um, and it was not spoken in any region as a as a native language, right? Um, it is now. And then there are holdout languages, you know, like Tosanese or, or yeah, well, Cantonese well, I mean, or whatever. You know, but, Haka. you know, more... More, more, more broadly, you can, you know, you can talk about uh, the very simple fact that you have many nationalisms in Africa, in particular, based on the colonial language, and in fact, the colonial language plays a fundamental role in keeping countries together because vernacularization could lead to all kinds of problems in countries with a diverse. Uh, you know, yeah, community. the Chino Achibe essay I mentioned at the beginning, mm -hmm. he argues exactly that that they can't give up English because it would cause Nigeria to fall apart, like because neither religion nor um, nor ethnicity nor language unites the country. But if the country was to fall apart into its various ethnic constituencies, it would not be strong enough to stand up to outside powers. Like, that's the argument, you know. Um, and so, you know, uh, Chibe ironically argues that decolonization means accepting some colonial things like the nation state and and um, English to hold to hold a collective um, a collective unit together strong enough. So so interestingly, I think that that indicates that like two of the planks of of uh, of Anderson theory are actually in tension with each other. Um, you know, the, the whole Creole nationalism, the admin in that case, which makes the case that a lot of nationalism are really based on like bureaucratic administrative borders, even when people get to set it up themselves. Right. Um, but if the vernacularization is part of it, that doesn't really mesh at all um, outside of Europe. It doesn't like, I mean, I would even argue, I mean, like, when we, you know, this is more your wheelhouse when we talk about like the the Middle East and West Asia and North Africa, where or you know what we might call broadly the Islamicate world, where this really gets complicated. Um, well, you know, in 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 the Arabic speaking world, we talk about a language called Arabic, but the language of that's spoken by people 
and the language of television in school is actually quite different. Right. Yeah. I learned that very quickly in Egypt. <laughs> so. And, uh, but, you know, there's a whole load of political reasons why, you know, in a place like Egypt, there was actually a movement for vernacularization uh, mm-hmm. uh, in, uh, uh, in the, uh, in the past. So it, it led to weird things like educated people, like middle-class educated people, not elites in uh, Egypt are more likely, even though they're not that likely to speak English, they're more likely to read English often than they are to read standard Arabic. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, it, it's kind of a strange scenario. Um, and the, these, I've always find that like most of these theories of nationalism start to break down when you start looking at middle Eastern nationalisms in particular, but Asia is another hard one. I mean, uh, China, you know, Chinese, quote, civic nationalism was always multi, it, it's a nationalism that is also explicitly multinational, mm-hmm. um, Sun Yat-sen includes uh, uh, the 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 Chinese Turks, the Tibetans, um, the Manchus, Mongols. the Mongols, and the Han are the five you know historical peoples. Mao expands that I think to eighteen historical like historical nationalities recognized as having uh, legitimacy in China. Um, Including some who have nations elsewhere, like the Chinese, uh, the, the Chinese Koreans, who of course there's Korea, like there's two of them. So, um, two Koreas, my word. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's and so- arguably, like the state of Choson was not split two ways, but three ways. Um, first, it was incorporated by the Qing into Qing China, the the tip of the north, then the north and the south, the center of, and the north and the south. Even though that's a product of a war, there are cultural and administrative differences between North and South Korea that predate um, even Japanese uh, colonialism, right? Like, um, there's religious differences and there's administrative differences, and those administrative differences get reified and and, uh, concretized even more during Japanese rule of Korea in the early, in the late 19th, early 20th century. Um, and so when I, when I look at those cases, these are like areas where Anderson's theory kind of works, but it kind of doesn't like the things that he's saying are, are, are creating nations to me are also kind of limits to how they congeal at all. Um, Yeah. I mean, certainly you have, you, that is like that is the issue because you have in different parts of the world different elements of what we might broadly culture or call culture playing a pivotal role in the definition of a particular national project. So, and Anderson has a good concept for this, actually. One of the Mm -hmm. strongest parts of his book, I would say, is his chapter on official nationalisms, which is the way nationalism was taken up by imperial regimes uh, in order to nationalize empire. So how the Russian empire went from being an explicitly multinational empire where the elite 
very proudly spoke French to being, you know, a, a, a Russian nation state and the way that this process was uh, taking place. And what we see in different parts of the world, like, you know, in, in places in places like Africa, for example, um, you know, language, insofar as it plays an important role in the definition of, of the nation, is largely symbolic, um, because on a practical level, the, the a particular national project often has to, to balance several different ethno-linguistic communities and so you know pushing too hard on a with a particular language can lead to the dissolution of that national project we look we see this for example in ethiopia today where you have tigray versus the amhara central government i'm not an expert on uh, ethiopia but you know you have this uh push for you have this historical push for uh, cultural centralization, which leads to reaction and counter-reaction over time uh, uh, in, in shaping the way that communities uh, view their relationship with the central government. So, yeah. so language can sometimes be uh, poisonous to a national project. Sometimes the issue is religion, right? If you look at a place like India, the primary political divisions in no way come down really along na uh, linguistic lines, or at least they are the linguistic divisions in Ch India are definitely second to religious ones. Totally. And I also find it a little bit hard to even justify in the European case, because for example, England, France, and Italy all have to, really really enforce a standard version of the language it isn't just vernacularization because there's also a sense in which like when the national project concretizes you're right there there are linguistic differences that lead to community differences that you really that a lot of these national projects have to come down on i mean like standard italian is almost a 20th century inven invention that is that while it does favor certain kinds of Italian over others, um, the, the regional dialects, even in a place as small as Italy, were so different that they were barely mutually comprehensible in the 19th century, right? So vernacularization can't explain that either. Um, and then, you know, in a place like the British Isles, this is, this is true, not just in the, you know, the Celtic outlier areas that still spoke like some Britonic uh, Gaelic language like Welsh or something, um, are the are the Scotch Irish dialects of, of Gaelic, um, but also in like standardizing the quote King or Queen's English as the standard English of both the empire and of the nation was a really important thing. In uh, interestingly, in the United States, you do have something more like, uh, like I might call Gutenberg esque. Uh, language consolidation because it's basically mid-Atlantic and then later on Hollywood that sets our standard dialect, right? Just because that's the media dialect. But it was also true that, you know, and and for a lot of the 20th century, um, even in a place like the U.S., like language, linguistic variants went along both class and regional lines to very small degrees, you know, 
And there are certain things I say that are left over in my language from like Macon, Georgia, that is unique to a tiny sliver of the middle of Georgia. Uh, like the way I pronounce water, you still hear it. It's strange to most ears. It's what most people hear as the sign of my Southern accent, water. Um, but also we have phrases like used to, could have, are very common in Macon. It's weird. It's a conditional future past tense. In the past, we could have believed this thing. Now we cannot. Um, that is actually unique. Like it's not unique to middle Georgia, but it's, that's common there. It's not common anywhere else. Um, uh, so this linguistic argument strikes me as an overstretch and it always has, but it's so what I find interesting about that. It is also the standard liberal narrative. Like it's like linguistic communities emerge, you know, then the treaty of left uh, Westphalia happens. Then we have nation states, right? Like that's kind of the standard liberal narrative for nation states, um, which it's modernist, but it's differently modernist than the Marxist narrative. And it seems like Anderson really is trying to, combine the two somehow um in his own synthesis that i see why this book is so popular because you could be a liberal and read this you know and it speak to you or you can be a marxist and read this and it speak to you and if you're not really up on the historical debates you're not even gonna know that this is different from the standard uh marxist narrative like like all the debates about what historical conditions made a nation or not this gets out of that debate because, you know, that is one of the most heated debates in Marxism is what makes you a legitimate nation and do the Jews count? And even Lenin goes back and forth on that, you know, um, because it has all kinds of implications. The Jews. Don't trust um, them. <laughs> so, you know, and, and, you know, we see the same kind of implications today in a lot of groups that you have to deal with. Kurds are an algae. Uh, uh, Parsis are another one. Um, and so, again, you have slight linguistic differences, but you have, like, religious differences and, and cultural differences that are not all that clear. I mean, and, and when Kurds, for example, as you pointed out, like, the, like, those regional dialects are dramatically different from each other. Yeah, right. I mean, and they don't conform to national borders. So Kurds from Iran and Iraq speak the same dialect, but Kurds from Turkey speak a different dialect. Um, anyway, Kurdish nationalism in Turkey is primarily conducted in the Turkish language. It's like the great irony is just as the Turkish state has successfully linguistically assimilated the Kurdish community, the Kurdish, Kurdish nationalism is also at its historically most mass moment. <laughs> so, you know, like they, and, and those two points are, are fundamentally connected. So what are some of the other critiques of Anderson? We've made ours, but what other ones have come up in the scholarly community um, that maybe are not followed by, like I said, this is the book most like most Marxists will ask me about when I talk about nationalism. Like, have you read Anderson's Imagined Communities? I'm like, I can't talk about nationalism if I haven't read Anderson, man. But what are some well, of the other critiques of it? I would say one of the ones that I always remember uh, is Anderson's conception of pre-modern Europe is perhaps a little bit simplistic. It seems to be primarily based on uh, the annals historians 
Lefebvre and um, Mark Bloch. Um, and so this kind of notion of the Latinate elite and the lack of vernacularization is a perhaps a little bit exaggerated. Uh, so, you know, this would be, this would be, uh, that th th there is, there is, there are questions about the depth of the research in areas where Anderson is not an expert. That's not to badmouth uh, Anderson's work, but to point out the difficulties of trying to create such a comprehensive uh, narrative of the rise of nationalism. And I think another uh, critique that is common, which we kind of hinted at, is Anderson's association of the question of racism with aristocratic politics rather than nationalism, in the sense that that kind of ignores the role of race in the construction of national identity, uh, particularly in Creole nationalisms in North, Central, and South America. The uh, racial uh, part of the settler colonial is left out of this Creole national discussion. Yeah. So this seems to be, uh, uh, there seems to be a disconnect here because, you know, the issue the racialization of chattel slavery in the Americas is a critical component to the formation of national identity in those regions because uh, on one hand, these places are at the vanguard of the bourgeois revolution, which is at least on paper an overt rejection of aristocracy. Now, of course, there's still class division in those societies, but it's this notion of a, a popular sovereignty uh, of democracy. Uh, so slavery and the slave and enslaved people have to be reimagined as a separate nationality or someone, a group that is not fully part of the nation, that there are some innate reasons for them being unable to participate and that is increasingly imagined along racial lines, which of course draws on pre-modern aristocratic notions of uh, of blood superiority. You know, it's a very common trope in pre-modern Europe for elites in particular societies to envisage themselves as being ethnically distinct from the peasant populations over which they rule, even in conditions where they are ostensibly the same people. Uh, you know, in Poland, you would have Polish-speaking peasantry and Polish-speaking aristocracy, but the Poles had the myth of Sarmatian origins that they were from some noble nomadic people from the East. Or even in a place like Britain, uh, before the fusion of the Franco-Normans and the Engl uh, and the Anglo-Saxons, you had a distinction between the Anglo-Saxon and the ruling uh, Franco-Norman elite. Hence Which affects why, our language. I mean, yes, yeah. that's why we call pigs 
pigs when it's cooked is the pork because that's the only people who got to eat pork and the, you know uh beef is beef not cow so uh you know so these kind of notions of uh, difference existed but you know in in, in a in the bourgeois world they come to be re-envisaged in different ways it's not a hierarchy in the sense but rather these people are not fully part of the nation and if you look at one of the solutions for the uh, slavery question in america was to just kick them all back to africa and make them go live in liberia yeah buy a state for them and set up a state for them there mm-hmm. you know and that that was like that was even lincoln's solution for a long time um yeah, which caused its own. If you actually study the history of West Africa, that caused its own shenanigans, like, huge bit of shenanigans because of the difference in the ethnicity of the of the slaves were not the same people that were currently inhabiting the land. So, like for example, to they would like you would insult you know uh, African Americans who went back to Africa as calling them Congolese. Um, if you were in Liberia, I forget the tribes that did that, but you, you, when you, when you study this, you realize, Oh, this is, this is a mess. And I, I do think that's another, one of my criticisms about Anderson is he like, it's comprehensive as it is. He cleans up a lot. Like he makes this a lot cleaner of a narrative um, mm-hmm. in my mind than I think it actually is. And I think it's, I think it's cause he, you know, and this may be out of the Asian context, right? Because, um, uh, Asian nationalism, for example, doesn't tend to have, except in places like Korea and Japan that had a relationship to the Axis powers, the racial component um, that that nationalism seemed to have in both uh, the Americas and in Europe. Um, and I guess if you have a theory that you're trying to show the like parallel development of these concepts, you're going to focus on certain things over others. If you're also trying to explain why nationalism looks the way it does in say China. Um, you know, um, so I find that, I find that interesting. Um, it also doesn't settle any of the political problems like Marxist have with nationalism. Like we talk about the national question, Anderson's book doesn't really settle it at all. It's just, and and to be fair, that's not trying to, it's a historical book, but, like when people tell me to go there for the answer to the national question, I'm like it doesn't, doesn't give you it doesn't give you any bloody answer to the, any national question, right? No, that's just hand wringing. You know, that's right. just ha- trying to hand wash the problem because it's a difficult one to think about. And it's, you say it's an imagined community, well, then what? Well, anyone can imagine a community. Like all, co- all community, most communities are imagined. Unless they're face-to-face communities, right? Right, and and this is even true for like we think about tribal peoples. You have to go real far back where all tribal peoples actually knew each other, like, like you have to go to almost like villages and hunter-gatherer and pastoralist bands. Like that's like that's that's how far back you have to go. So, you know, I I I also tend to be one of these. modernist but who sees ethno symbolism going all the way back into history like that is my i'll just go ahead and state my position on that um because i do notice that like 
a lot of this thinking seems to be analogous to tribal thinking, but is only possible in bourgeois conditions for it to organize I mean, this way. Right. I mean, I think, uh, I mean, I think there's a bunch of different questions, like with the particular forms of, you know, like is community a kind of ever present part of, of our identities, right? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I guess, yes, like tribal thinking is a kind of, uh, uh, there's always been kind of tribal ways of thinking. The, na the nation is a new form of tribal thinking uh, that has been, you know, qualitatively transformed by conditions of modernity, right? Uh, so you have, you know, you have that uh, issue there. That, but then there's the question of particular nations. I, the reason I don't like ethno-symbolism, uh, as a term at least, is because it implies that there's something... It implies... How might I put this? It implies that people have a certain community and it implies that these things called pre-modern ethnicities that may or may not under conditions of uh, modernity um, become nations. Whereas I tend to try and see, I, I, I don't believe that nations are entirely constructed from nothing in the modern era. Uh, the way I like to put it is nations are arbitrary in their construction, but they're not random, right? There are like concrete historical reasons why particular axes of identity became politicized in the way that they do. But my point would always would be is that even with the concept of the nation itself, it is imagined in different ways by different actors. In so, for some, it's imagined as an organic community based on blood. For others, it's seen as cultural. For others, it's seen as voluntaristic, like a French nationalism where you become, or an American nationalism. And nation, nations and national identity are kaleidoscopic in that they're always in a process of flux. And at times that sometimes leads people to unify their cultural and political identities into a very kind of ethnicized version of nationalism. But in other political circumstances, you can have bifurcated national identities, hyphenated national identities. I'm a proud American Italian, for example, right? Mm -hmm. So, so you know that these these pro these are always imagined in different ways. So, coming into modernity, people always had there were multiple different identities that any one individual might have drawn upon. Uh, but there are specific reasons why one particular identity became uh, politicized in the way that it did. But in essence, there is a kind of arbitrariness to that uh, to that process. Like, for example, let's say everybody, let's say all the Armenians had been like massacred in 1300. Nobody in the 19th century would be going around saying they were Armenian. Right. Nobody was going, nobody was really going around to call themselves Babylonians, were they? 
No, our Hittites, there hasn't been a Hittite dash. But, ha- our- but had there been like a Hittite kingdom that had survived down to, I don't know, 1850, maybe there'd be a Hittite nationalist movement. A few things right. had gone a little bit differently. Maybe we'd, talk, we'd, be, we'd be talking about Rhineland separatists living in Burgundy. Right. I mean, you know, are, are, you know, the Frisians trying to uh, establish a nation state, uh, you know, are the Burgundians, which was a, you know, which if I was looking at from the standpoint of things that might become a nation in say 1500, I might have put Burgundy as a nation, you know. Right. Um, it, it's another one, you know, everyone talks about how old German as, you know, German, German culture is, but I'm like, wait, but there's not one German culture, like the Prussian culture and like, um, Rhinelander culture and like Rhinelander culture versus, versus like Bavaria are radically different, you know? Um, and there are still traces of like, you know, subnationalisms in Germany. Um, and not just based on the East West of idol. That's a big one. Um, and I find this, you know, th- yeah, this doesn't answer any of the questions about how you parse this out. It, it, and I do find the fact that it kind of ignores, not just in the settler colonial settings, but like it, the biologization of, of language was a key factor of European um, national ideology in the 19th and early 20th century. It was almost universal. Like everybody was trying to be like, well, these languages were spoken by these people, and thus we also must be genetically these people. And like I admit, like that, you know, we can talk about like in Britain how although you know most people have some Anglo-Saxon DNA, the great majority of them are the, are like Celts, which means that people just changed their names and went from being, you know. Patrick or whatever. That's probably not, that's not a platonic name, but I'm just going to use it to like Alfred or Alpha Red, but they're the same people, right? Exactly. So, you know, like, like, but that, that, that part of the, of the 19th and 20th central national consolidation did try to paint these linguistic differences as biological. Like, right. um, and, you know, modern genetic studies in the past 10 years, which admittedly we can't fault Anderson for not knowing that in 1983 because, you know, we hadn't met the genome yet. <laughs> but it is something that you have to consider now um, about. the. But it does. It also means that that he's ignoring the, that 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 biologization of the nation was part of the European and a lot of the Creole um, national national projects, national projects. There's no way around that. And it does show up in Asian nationalism too, even though Asian nationalism is not quite as given to racialization as um, European nationalism has been. Give them time. Kind of obvious reasons. Give them time, buddy. Yeah. Well, I, I think we're kind of seeing that like, there is a real, even right now, there is a real contestation between uh, if Sun Yat-sen slash Mao's like multi-ethnic Chinese nationalism or Han nationalism is going to ultimately win out. Uh, you know, th- there th- that is a debate 
had encoded language in the uh, CPC. There's that that is a real division in the CPC. Um, and so I think that's something we have to deal with. And as I point out to people, uh, at least in the case of, of, of Tibet and the Uyghurs, who are two peoples that are listed explicitly as being sovereign peoples in this Chinese nation by both Sun Yat-sen and Mao, there's tensions there, obviously. Even if you take a very... What? Uh, are you telling me this? You, are you telling me it's not all... It's not all okay. I've seen right. several YouTube videos uh, about how the, I'm, I'm, I'm an imperialist dupe. Um, yeah, yeah, me too. Um, even for even for pointing to China's own stats on this. Um, Why would you do that? Why would you point to China's own stats? Huh? Yeah, I know. I know. Are the fact that China. Not to get into this, but to get to the not to get too in distraction, but China doesn't even deny that the education camps existed prior to 2019. Like it's just they just deny that they were doing anything nefarious, which you know sounds like early 20th century residential schools to me, but that's just me. Uh, yes, national but, consolidation projects are like that. I mean, that's what it comes down to, doesn't it? I mean, really, at the end of the day, it's just the end of the that's the process, right? That's the, that's the uh, type. Well, I think we're getting way off topic. So yeah, but uh, yeah, we should probably end up here, but that, that process is not represented in Anderson's text, I guess, is what we would say. Like he, he tends to not, he doesn't deny that this happens, but he tends to think it's not essential to, uh, well, he puts it with nationalism. The, uh, the official nationalisms. Right. Well, that was a fun first discussion. I guess we have to think of another book. Yeah, uh, let's talk about the invention of tradition by Hobsbawm because that's another one that left us probably, if they're you know, they likely to encountered. Um, maybe we can talk about it. Maybe we can talk about both that one and his Nations and Nationalism book, uh, confusingly, which has the almost identical title to Gellner's. <laughs> it's, it's a catchy title. Well, we've been we've been talking about imagined communities by Benedict Anderson. If you have time, do pick up a copy, have a read. Um, this one has a nice snazzy cover. That's the one I have. Um, I think I have it right here. And I have the American one, which has a beige cover. It's boring. Oh. <laughs> well, with that, as we say on TIR. We are out. <laughs>